Today's Talk 10 Tuesday is sponsored by Ipspalooza. Get ready to conquer the 2024 ICD-10 code changes with expert guidance. Click the link in the ConMat section to learn more. We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer on September 12th, 2023. Today, we welcome internationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Also on board is Lori Johnson with the latest coding news. Tiffany Ferguson reports on the social determinants of health. Stanley Nockhamson rolls out the latest regulatory news from Washington. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who believes our economy is at an inflection point, although it could just be gas. Chuck Buck. <laughs> yeah, it could be gas. You only get about uh, 10 miles a gallon. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 568th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Erica, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, our good friend Dr. H. Stephen Moffick joins us today because... This is National Suicide Prevention Week, and he has some very important news about how to tell if you or someone you know might be contemplating suicide. You know, it's a tough topic. Yes, it is, Chuck, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's a huge global mental health issue, and I'm glad that Stephen is going to be talking to us. Indeed, Erica. Thanks very much. And, of course, you know, the World Health Organization, that would be the WHO, estimates that about 700,000 deaths each year caused by suicide. Now, Erica, on a more upbeat topic, what is your uh, talk back today? I'm not sure how much more upbeat it is, but <laughs> I'm introducing the Hospital Sepsis Program Core Elements today. Ooh, very good. Thanks, Erica. That's going to be an excellent topic, and we look forward, of course, to hearing your talk back. We have much news reporting, so we begin, of course, with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'm going to be talking about the rising cost of blood thinners and the burden it places on Medicare and patients. According to a new report by Patients for Affordable Drugs, Medicare spent an astonishing $46 billion on just two blood thinners between 2015 and 2020. These are Xarelto by Johnson & Johnson and Eliquis by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. The list prices of these medications have more than doubled since their introduction to the market, posing a significant burden on the healthcare system and patients. So why do the rising prices matter? While list prices are not the final cost after rebates, the negotiations between drug manufacturers and payers, they hold significant weight, particularly considering the impact of these rising list prices on Medicare Part D cost-sharing arrangements. Medicare beneficiaries are directly impacted as they have to pay more out-of-pocket when these list prices increase. Now, blood thinners are far from a niche medication. Over 8 million Americans depend on them regularly to manage various conditions like atrial fibrillation, deep vein thrombosis, which I have, pulmonary embolisms, and before 2020, warfarin was the go-to option for blood thinning. Though cost-effective, warfarin carries a substantial risk of heavy bleeding and making its use challenging to manage. However, the landscape began to change in 2011 when Johnson & Johnson introduced Sorelto, followed by Eliquis in 2013. These new entries promised a better safety profile while reducing the risk of severe bleeding associated with warfarin. However, the cost was significantly higher, and while warfarin could be bought for a fraction of the price, these new drugs entered the market with a list price of upwards of $200 for each month's supply. 
And then as an escalating snapshot, over time, the list prices for both Eliquis and Xarelto have surged and now stand at over $500 per month supply. While these medications offer advantages in terms of safety and efficacy, the price inflation remains a point of concern. And as of 2020, Eliquis became Medicare's top spending drug and Xarelto is not far behind as the third most costly. With nearly 4 million Medicare beneficiaries relying on one of these two drugs, the financial ramifications are hard to ignore. And the rising costs of blood thinners have a domino effect on healthcare expenditures and resource allocations. When the healthcare system is burdened with high medication costs that, that could be available for other essential services such as diagnosis and treatments. Moreover, the exorbitant out-of-pocket costs could discourage patients from adhering to their Medicare regimen, risking complications that are even costlier to manage in the long term. So there's a need for a paradigm shift. The need for affordable yet effective medication is a pressing concern. The significant spending on blood thinners like Eliquis and Xarelto is a stark reminder that balancing drug innovation and affordability remains a critical challenge as policymakers ponder over healthcare reforms, the findings for patients for affordable drugs, and after compelling evidence that this change is not just desirable, but it's urgently needed. Luckily, starting September of 2024, a crucial change will occur in the way Medicare deals with high-cost blood thinners like Eliquis and Xarelto. Medicare will pay a negotiated rate for these drugs, a departure from the earlier model, which led to skyrocketing costs. While this is a step in the right direction for users like myself who rely on Eliquis, the financial burden remains severe. With existing rates, my insurance and I will be facing a staggering $6,000 annual cost for my prescription. So while the decision to move to a negotiator is commendable, the question remains, is it enough? The list prices for these drugs have more than doubled since their introduction to the market. And uh, giving the scale to this problem, simply reducing a negotiated rate might not be a sufficient solution. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Pell, Tim was a compliance expert. He's also the NASA correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for the Talk Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. Today kicks off the two-day Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. The meeting started at 9 o'clock and is available virtually if you registered. This meeting began with the procedure topics. The following items have been presented so far the irreversible electroporation uh, for cardiac ablation in computer-aided anesthesia and oxygen therapy system. They were pretty much on time till I had to sign off. There's a, a total of five topics to be covered live on the procedure side, um, plus the addenda. There are two NTAP applications for therapeutic agents that are to be considered, but they will not be presented. And it looks like the procedure session will wind up around 11 o'clock this morning. The diagnosis proposals will begin immediately after the procedure proposals. There are 30 proposals for diagnosis um, plus the addenda that are scheduled for discussion Um, today and then continuing into tomorrow. Um, And another thought is if you can't attend live, this um, meeting is recorded and can be viewed on demand on from looking at the CMS or the CDC websites. Um, The presentation slides will also be made available as well. So, and I also have some dates based on the information that's been um, 
published is in November of 2023, the ICD-10-CM and PCS codes will be published. Um, that will be effective April 1st, 2024. Um, November 15th is the deadline for receipt of public comment um, on the code proposals from today and tomorrow's coordination and maintenance committee meeting. Um, and they are considered for October 1st, 2024 implementation. December 1st is the deadline for new code requests to be presented at the March 19th and 20th, 2024 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. The schedule for the meetings is 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time with a lunch break at 12.30 to 1.30 um, you're encouraged to comment live as well as submit written comments on the code proposal. So we're already in the swing, Erica. Back to you. I know it, Lori. And I, I love, you know how I love this time of year. Um, thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. Now available on demand is the three-day webcast series, which you need to hear to remain compliant with the 2024 Inpatient Prospective Payment System. It's the IPPS Coding Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. During this exclusive three-day summit, you'll learn about the important changes associated with the 2024 IPS, including new ICD-10-CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Register now to listen and learn with the on-demand IPPS Coding Summit, especially Day 3, where you'll learn about important changes to the MSDRG methodology and new technology add-on payments codes. That's the IPPS Coding Summit produced by ICD-10 Monitor. Now available on-demand at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. By the way, uh, day three is a very, very important webcast. It's all about the uh, MSDRG changes and, of course, the uh, new technology add-on code. So be sure to register now to attend on-demand day three. In fact, all of them. Now it's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday report on the social terms of health. Here now is Tiffany Ferguson. And good morning, Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, all. Okay, so if you look in the comments section, I posted a link in there. So that link is the new infographic that CMS Office of Minority Health released on Z codes uh, for SDOH to help improve the collection of SDOH Z codes. The goal of this was to assist providers in understanding and using SDOH terminology in their documentation that will allow for greater alignment for ICD-10 CMZ code capture. As discussed, CMS believes that greater Z code capture will enhance quality improvement activities and provide further insights into the existing health inequities that hospitals and their communities are facing. The infographic clarifies that Z codes can be captured and utilized in any health setting and by the 
by any provider as a tool for identifying the nine major categories that the Z codes represent, such as employment, housing, literacy, food insecurity, personal safety, and transportation. Reporting of Z codes would be for social factors that influence an individual's health status, condition, or the reason for receiving health services that are not classifiable elsewhere as diseases, injuries, or external causes. The infographic does clarify that SDOH information can be collected prior to, during, or after a healthcare encounter through structured assessments and or screening tools. However, the codes should only be assigned when the documentation specifies that the patient has an associated problem or risk factor that is influencing the patient's health. Coding professionals are able to utilize documentation from social workers, community health workers, case managers, or nursing, as long as the information is in the medical record. SDOH can also be self-reported as long as it is signed off by a licensed professional and in the medical record. So in closing, what I thought I would do is actually provide an example. Patient X has come into their primary care office for a visit, a cough that won't go away. During the visit, patient X is provided paperwork to complete and sign off as part of registration. When the medical assistant calls the patient back to the exam room, the patient discusses that they are unable to complete the paperwork because they have trouble with reading the material. The medical assistant is understanding and listens to the patient's concerns related to their limited reading level and then proceeds to help patient X fill out all the paperwork. Issues related to health literacy is documented in the patient's record, so the rest of the care team understands that the patient will be unable to read any materials that are printed out at the end of their visit or during subsequent visits, all those things we hand patients. Um, At the time of coding, the new code Z55.6, problems related to health literacy, are captured and reported. Back to you, Erica. That was a great example. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Now it's the time for a very popular segment here at Dr. Enthusiasts called Reg Watch. And it features former CMS official now turned IT consultant Stanley Knockerson. And good morning, Stanley. Hey, Stanley, a lot of news coming out of Washington. What do we really need to know today, Stanley? Well, good morning, Chuck, and to everyone on the show and listening out there. August and September are a big season for the CMS annual Medicare payment rules with final rules for institutional payments updated on a fiscal year basis with the rules effective October 1st. These are for inpatient hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, hospice payments, inpatient rehab facilities, and inpatient psychiatric facilities. These rules that were published generally showed uh, between a two and 4% increase in payments for these facilities which uh, some are claiming is not enough to keep up with inflation. There was an interesting wrinkle in the payment policies for long-term care hospitals, however. In the original fiscal year 2024 proposed rules, the outlier payment threshold, that is the increased uh, payments that uh, are sent to these hospitals for very complicated cases, was increased dramatically based on the CMS calculation method. Uh, This would have led to an overall decrease in payments to these long-term care hospitals. However, the public comments were extremely negative on this, and CMS changed their methodology to a somewhat lower threshold, resulting in higher payments to these facilities. 
This shows the power of the public comment period, as I've always said. CMS reviews these comments and takes them quite seriously. Now, proposed payment rules for other types of providers whose payments are updated on a calendar year have also been published. The physician fee schedule rules proposed an overall reduction in the fee schedule based on legally required adjustments. This has been an annual event, which is usually resolved by Congress. The proposed rule also included payment uh, and coding rules for certain caregiver training services, paying practitioners for engaging with caregivers. CMS also proposed coding and payment for community health integration services, including person-centered planning, promoting patient self-advocacy, and facilitating access to community-based resources. These will be paid to community health workers. The rule also proposes coding and payment for social determining determinants of health risk assessments as an add-on to the annual wellness visits or an ENM visits. In a bit of a surprise, the rule also proposed ending the appropriate use criteria program, which by law required physicians ordering complex radiological procedures like MRIs and CAT scans to consult a clinical decision support mechanism to justify the order. This program has been in testing phase for several years and CMS has now found it unworkable. So they've basically put a hold on this and are waiting for Congress to help resolve this problem. And in the outpatient prospective payment proposed rule, CMS asked for comments on the hospital price transparency program and how it can better interact with the other programs which require health plans to publish rates and the No Surprises Act requirements for individual patient pricing. So again, plenty of opportunities to send CMS our comments on these proposals. And as, as we've seen, they often respond to them. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Stanley. That was former CMS official Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Here's a special opportunity to learn about the comprehensive guidelines and best practices for secondary diagnosis coding during an illuminating ICD-10 monitor webcast. It takes you on a deep dive into the intricacies of accurately assigning secondary diagnosis codes to ensure precise medical documentation. You'll learn the essential insights, including documentation requirements, sequencing strategies, and industry updates. It's time to elevate your coding skills, and this special webcast is the place to learn how to stay current with the latest coding advancements. Learn how to determine the correct DRG assignment to optimize reimbursement, support medical decision-making, and maintain compliance. That webcast, Secondary Diagnosis Coding, a deep dive into guidelines and best practices, is September 20th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register today. As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, this is National Suicide Prevention Week. And according to the World Health Organization, the WHO, there are about 700,000 suicides every year. It's a huge problem. So we asked our good friend, Dr. A. Stephen Moffick, to be on our program today to talk to us a little bit about what we should know and do if we suspect that someone's going to either hurt themselves or others. So, Dr. Moffick, welcome to the program. Nice to have you back, sir. Thank you. Well, Chuck, the early warning signs, the bottom of the melting suicidal iceberg, 
or what I like to say is heading off suicide at the pass before we add to this dreadful data. Interestingly, it is particularly dreadful news in the United States, as our rate has been increasing over the last 20 years, whereas the suicide rates have been decreasing in the rest of the world. Actually, suicide and other self-destructive tendencies usually begin in individuals much before any public expression or call for help. The basic point is that most everybody on occasion will have suicidal or other self-destructive destructive thoughts or actions, the latter being often called slow or passive suicide. Take myself, although I've never had a suicidal thought or even casually uh, mentioned, I wish I was dead, I was quite self-destructive as a youth, leading me to be named most accident-prone for my high school graduation. That all ended when I met and dated my wife of 55 years early in college at the University of Michigan. Having an overly critical inner voice is at the root of much self-destructive behavior. Think of such internal criticisms as, quote, you're stupid, or, quote, you're not attractive. This inner negativity usually comes from parents who berate their children, and sometimes teachers do so, too. Children also naturally feel responsible for what happens to their parents and the parents' problems. This inner criticism often escalates with being discriminated against, big losses, chronic physical pain, major life changes, housing problems, addiction, and postpartum depression. Here I want to make a shout out to Tiffany for mentioning all these social problems because they contribute too. Um, on my list is the pandemic, social isolation, and especially our epidemic of loneliness, job loss, financial stress, and discrimination. When psychological and or physical pain combines with hopelessness, as can happen with many psychiatric disorders, suicide risk becomes particularly high. This can happen with severe and unrelenting suffering and result in a request for what is sometimes called physician-assisted suicide. As usual, successful treatment of psychiatric disorders will lessen suicide risk. The main protective factor for suicide is human connections. Human connections. Most important is having someone to talk to who is trusted, including family, friends, and therapists. The challenge is being able to ask loved ones for verification or not of these negative thoughts, even if that temporarily makes you feel ashamed for even doing so. From the nature side, we also need to take a family history because suicide does tend to run in families, or at least suicide attempts. Keep in mind this apparent paradox, though. When cutting off suicidality fails, sometimes the person or patient seems better, but for no clear and convincing reason. That may mean they are relieved because they've decided on suicide, putting them at the highest risk possible. Perhaps that happened to my first and only patient that committed suicide. It was during my second year, actually I should say who died by suicide, committed is the wrong word. Um, an elderly depressed man came in with his wife and I started an antidepressant years back and he seemed somewhat better the next week, which was certainly not a medication result because it was too quick. His wife soon called and said he had walked into Lake Michigan and drowned. Both us clinicians and social connections shouldn't be fooled by a positive social mass hiding a suicidal plan. That often explains why someone is surprised that someone they knew closely committed suicide. 
Fortunately now, there is also a direct 988 suicide hotline to use when necessary, now even useful for the death. So let's uh, make uh, an effort to reduce our suicide and suicidality this present year. It's way too high in the United States, and that's a reflection of our culture. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Mavic. That was Dr. H. Stephen Mavic. Dr. Mavic is a renowned psychiatrist, and he's also an award-winning author, and we're very proud to say that he's our Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist. Here now with a very popular segment of Talk 10 Tuesday, it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck, and I'm glad to see that uh, Steve pointed out that the proper terminology now is to say died by suicide. Um, using the word committed makes it sound, it, it emphasizes criminality as opposed to um, a mental health issue. So I, I was glad to see that. Um, in August, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, <clears throat> released the Hospital Sepsis Program Core Elements 2023 to monitor and optimize hospital management and improve outcomes of sepsis. The sepsis core elements, or SCE, are intended to, quote, complement existing sepsis guidelines, close quote, hint, hint, sepsis three, and to help organizations develop guidelines for best practice clinical care. Sepsis is a leading cause of hospitalization and contributes to over one third of all hospital deaths. The SCE publication opens with the definition of sepsis as, you've heard it before, quote, life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, close quote. There has been great interest in developing clinical decision support tools to recognize and guide treatment of sepsis. The SCE notes that hospital sepsis quality improvement programs reduce hospital mortality, length of stay, and costs. The SCE lays out in detail the process to develop a sepsis initiative. Institutional leadership support must be procured, and then they recommend having co-leaders of a physician and nurse working with all invested stakeholders. A needs analysis of the current state and the applicable regulatory and reporting requirements must be performed. Ambitious goals must be established based on the needs analysis. Sepsis must be a hospital priority and staff buy-in must be procured. Sufficient resources must be allocated, including personnel, analytic support, and time. Sepsis activities must be integrated with other quality improvement and safety initiatives like antimicrobial stewardship and SEP1. Staff must be trained and held accountable. There must be collaboration across services, units, and the hospital system. Continual reassessment and update of goals should be done at regular intervals. A formal structure quality improvement process should be utilized. In the action step, they recommend implementation of a standardized screening process. There are no clinically validated screening tools, but my strong advice is that regardless of what is used to trigger a second look, even SIRS, organ dysfunction needs to be present to diagnose sepsis. Their next advice is to create and maintain a standardized care guideline in terms of clinical evaluation, treatment, and discharge planning. Antibiotics should be administered promptly, be followed by the next dose at the appropriate interval, be continued for a reasonable duration, and be discontinued when appropriate. 
development of a code sepsis protocol is discussed. This harmonizes with the best practices clinical care guideline and facilitates expedient treatment. The SCE also covers the common sequelae of sepsis and actions which can support recovery. Responsible care handoff is crucial to ensuring a patient has the best chance of returning to pre-sepsis function. The section on tracking gives an overview of which metrics should be monitored and how to assess the success of the sepsis program. Chart reviews with root cause analysis and process improvement considerations recommended. Clinicians should receive feedback and education informed by the chart reviews. Obviously, tracking must be combined with reporting. It was noted that increased awareness of sepsis may lead to earlier recognition or inclusion of milder disease, which can lower perceived mortality from the disease. I will also add that including cases which only have SIRS without organ dysfunction will have the same effect. The final step in the SCE is education. They do not limit it to healthcare providers, but include all patient-facing staff, trainees, patients, families, and caregivers. Patients who have had one episode of sepsis are at higher risk for recurrent sepsis. There are many resources offered in the SCE. The final offering is the Hospital Sepsis Program Core Elements Assessment Tool. It's a blueprint for hospitals to assess and optimize elements of sepsis care. This publication is a welcome addition to the sepsis resources we have. Whether your institution uses sepsis 2, and if so, I encourage them to evolve, or has a pretty robust sepsis plan, I think the clinical leaders should read this document and review the suggestions. One third of hospital deaths are from sepsis. It's time to do something about it. Back to you, Chuck. Erica, that's an excellent topic for your talk back. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Talk to Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today. Timothy Ferguson, Laurie Johnson, Stanley Nyerson, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, who recorded our lead story. And a very special thank you to my host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And until we meet again, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk to Tuesday. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.